Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Clovia Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton is a tenure-track assistant professor in the Technology and Society Department of SUNY Korea, which is an affiliate of Stony Brook University, located in Songdo, South Korea, about an hour outside of Seoul. Dr. Hamilton teaches ethics, smart education, smart cities, and industrial engineering operations management. Prior to SUNY Korea, Dr. Hamilton was a tenure-track assistant professor of management at Winthrop University, focused on global supply chain and operations management and business law and ethics. Dr. Hamilton's research focuses on business law and ethics, technology management, academic entrepreneurship, faculty and student startups, college industry partnerships, university and federal lab technology transfer operations as novel supply chains, intellectual property, and scientific misconduct. Dr. Hamilton has a BS in engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, a JD from John Marshall Law School, a master's in law from the University of Illinois, a MBA from Wesleyan College, and a PhD in industrial and systems engineering from the University of Tennessee. In addition, Dr. Hamilton is a registered U.S. patent attorney and a member of the Georgia State Bar. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Hamilton. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Well, thank you so much again for taking part in the podcast. And Dr. Hamilton, I would like to spend this podcast talking to you about several different aspects of your research over the course of your career as it relates to universities and technology transfer. And I thought I would start things off by asking you about some of your most recent research, specifically your work published in Administrative Sciences in 2020, which was entitled knowledge-based view of university tech transfer, a systematic literature review and meta-analysis. Now, I know from that paper that the, the purpose of your research was to examine what enables productive technology transfer performance, and your study adopted a knowledge-based view as the theoretical construct to support a comprehensive investigation into this area. And you achieve this by employing a systematic literature review combined with a robust meta-analysis. And this research ultimately led you to test four hypotheses that I want to really dive into in some detail uh, here now and ask you about. So the first hypothesis, Dr. Hamilton, you tested was, is knowledge management positively related to TTO performance in the areas of patenting, licensing, and generating startups? Can you tell us a, in a little bit more detail about what you found? Sure. Um, I conducted this research with Dr. Simon Spielman. He's an engineering management professor and 
London. And we define the construct knowledge management to include measures related to uh, tech transfer office characteristics, such as their size, their staffing size, the full-time equivalent, employees, age of their office, and the amount of money that they spend on their legal assistance. And we characterize those categories as being part of management. But we didn't find any support for the hypothesis that knowledge management would be positively related to performance. And when we define performance as the patenting, licensing, and generation of startups. Um, so we did not find support for that hypothesis. Studies with measures related to management did not closely relate to the end performance. Now, the second hypothesis you tested was, is knowledge deployment positively related to TTO performance in the areas of patenting, licensing, and generating startups? Can you tell us here what you found? Yeah, we we defined deployment to include the presence of invention disclosures, patent applications, and issued patents. And, and we did find some support there um, for the hypothesis that that deployment, having invention disclosures, having patent applications and issued patents would be closely related to performance. Um, so we did find support in that studies with measures related to, again, the invention disclosures, issue patents, and patent applications did closely relate to licensing. And it makes sense. You can't have licensing without having uh, something to license. So, you know, that, that was expected. Now, the third hypothesis you tested was, is knowledge infrastructure positively related to TTO performance in the areas of patenting, licensing, and generating startups? Now, for this hypothesis, can you tell us what you found? Uh, infrastructure we define as incubators or the presence of medical schools. Oftentimes, tech transfer offices will say, um, well, we're not doing well because we don't have a med school or we don't have a business incubator. Um, we did not find support that for schools that had these things, it was that there was a close relationship between these two types of infrastructure and performance in terms of starting businesses, um, licensing. And so it's what we didn't find that was important in, in terms of our findings. We did not find support that, you, you know, you had to have presence of medical schools or incubator in order to achieve licensing. That was really interesting, I thought. And, and that, I think, ties well into your last and fourth hypothesis that you tested, which was, are external investments positively related to TTO performance in the areas of patenting, licensing, and generating startups? So can you tell us what you found here? Sure. Um, we define external investments as measures of regional GDP, regional research and development intensity, total research funding, or corporate industry-type funding, and... Um, we didn't find support there either that when when you have a, a 
presence of those things um, that we didn't find a correlation or, or a relationship between those things and licensing and startup formation. So again, you know, that was another um, shocker <laughs> that we didn't really see a relationship between those two uh, external investments and uh, performance in terms of licensing and startup. So overall, Dr. Hamilton, what conclusions were you ultimately able to derive from this research? Well, what it tells us is that what's important are patent, uh, having inventions to patent, having patent applications underway, and having issued patents. Um, when I worked in tech transfer uh, for university and federal government, I worked for the uh, uh, Environmental Protection Agency. Um, it, this all makes sense because we can take a, a raw invention or a patent application or issue patent to a company and try to license it. If you don't have those those three things, you really don't have anything to. Uh, you, you know, you're not in business, and um, so those are the the types of things that need to be invested in. You know, if we were to give advice based on our findings, we would advise a university tech transfer office or federal lab to, you know, invest their money in in those three things, making sure that their researchers are are you know inventing patentable inventions, that patent applications are underway, and and that they're pushing to have, you know, claims that can be patented. So, you know, the bottom line is you need something to license. Um, what's even more revealing is, um, you know, we, we can steer universities away from this perception that they have, have to have a business incubator or a medical school because some schools simply do not have the um, money to invest in those types of things. Uh, or, you know, we don't want them to feel like they, they can't play in this game if they don't have a medical school or a business incubator yet. You know, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I, I thought it was a neat study. Yeah, I thought the study was really interesting and fascinating. And that leads me to the question, Dr. Hamilton. Overall, how would you say your findings are useful for university tech transfer offices? Well, you know, I think... What we really wanted to do was to be able to tell a tech transfer office where to invest their um, resources, especially their limited financial resources. And so we would advise, especially a, a fledgling emerging tech transfer office, we would we would we would advise them to um, focus on, on their R and D. Um, supporting their researchers, supporting their researchers with patent applications and with trying to issue patents and maintain those patents rather than feeling like they need to pressure their universities or their federal agencies or state agencies to um, invest in physical infrastructure like an a, a incubator or a, med a medical school. Um, so that's really the takeaway. 
Now, switching gears a little bit, in 2018, you published a paper in Applied Management Journal that contained some of your research from your dissertation. And specifically in that paper, it describes the development of a novel job scheduling tool for university tech transfer offices to help them combat technology transfer task processing delays. Can you tell us a little bit more about this scheduling tool you developed and the benefits of this tool and whether any university tech transfer offices are using it? Sure. Um, I worked as a tech transfer specialist for the Environmental Protection Agency and for the University of Illinois in Champaign. I served as director of tech transfer at Old Dominion. And um, what was interesting to me was we never schedule our technology transfer cases. Um, I'm a I'm an attorney and uh, as you know, a lawyers we we schedule out our legal cases. Um and oftentimes we use software, you know. And so I, I viewed um each new invention disclosure or issue patent um, as a as a legal case, but we didn't really use scheduling tools in, in university tech transfer or or in federal labs. So when I was working on my dissertation, I thought it might be neat to investigate a real simple, you know, how to develop a real simple job scheduling tool using optimization techniques. Um, that could be a whole another podcast yeah. to get into how it works. But I used this science called simulated annealing and optimization and came up with a neat tool. It it is not in use yet. And I'm actually looking for uh, applying for federal grant to continue to research because I would like to um, offer the tool to some universities and test it out in their tech transfer offices to see um, if it's something. Something that would catch on, you know, um, using a job scheduling tool to manage tech transfer. And I would think you would get some takers for that, just especially some of the smaller offices that I know I've had several people from smaller offices on this podcast, and they are so strapped for time and resources, and there's just not enough hours in the day that I would think you would get some takers to to try and um, trial that. Yeah, that'd be neat. Yeah. Well, good luck. I hope I hope you can get that uh, that federal funder or the grant at least. Um, switching gears a little bit, Dr. Hamilton. In 2016, you defended your dissertation, which was entitled "The Toolkit for Building HBCU Technology Transfer Supply Chain Networks Using an Advanced Planning System." And specifically in your dissertation, you just described how your mixed method study resulted in the development of a university technology transfer toolkit that historically black colleges and universities, also known as HBCUs, could use to become more self-reliant financially. Um, and I want to talk about this tool in a little bit more detail with you. But before we get into the specifics of your research, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with, with HBCUs, can you describe what an HBCU is and the difference between it and a non-HBCU? Sure. Um the historically black colleges and universities, that's what HBCU stands for. They are defined in the Higher Education Act of United States 
dating back to 1965, is any historically Black college or university that was established before 1964. And the university or college has to have a principal mission to educate Black Americans. And um, they have to be accredited by a nationally recognized accrediting agency or association um, approved by the Secretary of Education to be reliable. So currently, I think we have about 100 of these colleges and universities, and there's a White House initiative on HBCUs that track them and manage them and, and help them out. So, it, you know, but that's that's what it stands for. So I know there's something called emerging HBCU. Can you tell us how that's different from an emerging research institution? Sure. Um, there are emerging uh, research institutions and for the most part, HBCUs fall in that category. And the way, uh, I call them ERIs, but the way these emerging research institutions are defined, they're defined by the Federal Demonstration Partnership of the National Academy. So this is part of the um, National Research Council. And these uh, universities and colleges are institutions that are relatively new to managing federal funds and uh, uh, federal obligations for science and engineering in particular. They have to have less than $20 million annually in federal research and development funded by agencies like the NSF or the National Center for Science and Engineering, that and like I said, most HBCUs fall in this category because they're smaller universities and institutions. So they have less than the $20 million a year and would be considered emerging. So can you give us a little bit of the history about HBCUs and in particular how they got their start? Sure. Um, they got their start post-slavery. The slaves once they were freed, Black American slaves in America, uh, once they were freed, they needed to be educated. It was largely K through 12 education, because as you can imagine, we were talking about slaves that could not read or write or do math, and they needed to learn how to do so in order to assimilate and, and, and become a part of American life. Uh, outside of the slave system, and the the schools also focused on the general trade. So they learned how to um, take on work in factories or 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 different types of trade job preparations. Uh, an example I always share with people is my mom grew up in Tuskegee, Alabama. And Tuskegee is well known for the Tuskegee Institute. And she attended Tuskegee Institute back in the 1940s. It's now called 
called Tuskegee University, but her major was nutrition. And um, she would always share that the the degree really wasn't, uh, it didn't seem like a nutrition degree program that we're familiar with these days. It was really preparation for work in a cafeteria or at a hotel or in a restaurant. Um, so that, you know, it was a focus on the trade. Do you have any idea, Dr. Hamilton, whose idea the HBCUs were? How how exactly, you know, was there a group of people? Was it a government initiative? Yeah, um, the one of the groups that helped to fund the institutions, these, these schools, in order to help them to grow and the, and the stay afloat were industrial philanthropists. They received charitable donations from um, philanthropists like Rockefeller, John Slater, uh, uh, he was a textile tycoon, Thomas White owned a sewing machine company. He was a sewing machine tycoon. So there are a number of of tycoons like that that were interested in HBCUs because of this emphasis on teaching the ex-slaves how to um, function in general society, but also how to work in um, factories. So, um, you know, the the trade, the industrial philanthropist had a had a, a huge interest and stake in these universities. So are they spread across the country or do you find them only in certain parts of the U.S.? They're largely in um, what I call slave states, which were uh, primarily in the south of the United States, but also along the East Coast. And I think that I think their presence on the East Coast has to do with the fact that the former slaves migrated north and northeast uh, looking to get away from an agrarian lifestyle, maybe get get away from all the farming and the cotton fields and things like that. And um, as they migrated east, they were migrating toward industrial factory work. So what percentage of U.S. universities would you say are HBCUs? Well, we have um, about 2,800 four-year universities in the United States, and there are 100 HBCUs, so we're looking at three, three and a half percent of the American universities are HBCUs. Now, what does the state of finances for HBCUs look like since their inception, and how would you say they've done with federal funding? Well, we can we can start that journey back in the 1970s. There was a, a study, um, a 1973 study by a scholar last name Thompson, uh, who revealed that in 1969 the HBCUs were receiving about three percent of the total federal funds that were granted to American schools, um, which is a pretty low funding level, um, 
given that the students were mostly economically deprived to begin with, and, and that these schools, the HBCUs, had very few wealthy alumni. They didn't have um, endowments and things like that or philanthropic foundations. And their in- industry support had actually waned by 1969. Um, and then a, a researcher, uh, Garibaldi, published that the federal funding was about 38%. And, and that publication came out in 1984. Um, so the, the federal funding had increased over uh, a 20-year span. Uh, and because of that, the HBCUs became increasingly dependent on federal aid, uh, beginning with President Carter back in the 1980s. These schools began to get regular annual allotments of federal funding. And so the Clinton administration, they awarded $13 million to 29 of the HBCUs as federal assistance. Um, and then 5% of federal grants and contracts also went to HBCUs, and those are called set aside. Uh, but again, what, what kind of concerns me is this dependence that they have on the government funding. Of course, all universities in America look forward to some government support, but um, you know, uh, I, I would like to see the HBCUs get more involved in things like research and you know more research and development and more technology transfer so that they can have additional revenue streams other than the federal support. Now, Dr. Hamilton, would you say or what would you say are the differences between technology transfer offices at HBCUs versus non-HBCU tech transfer offices in terms of how they're structured and or operate? Well, very few of the 100 HBCUs that are research and development oriented. These schools started as teaching institutions and uh, I would I would say the vast majority of them are still teaching oriented. Um, there are probably less than 10, maybe 10 that are clearly capable of research and development are active in it um, and have a tech transfer office presence. But they're they're teeny tiny compared to let's say a R one or R two institution like the University of Illinois or University of Wisconsin. They don't compare. You know, we're looking at an office of one person. Um, FAMU has a a larger office because of their pharmaceuticals. They have four people, but for the most part, it's it's just you know one to to, uh, you know, less than a handful of, of specialists supporting the faculty. So that's the, that's the biggest difference is somehow they've got to expand their capacity. Now, turning back to your research, can you tell us a little bit more about it and the tools that actually make up the kit? Um, sure. The tools included in the kit 
are benchmarks of how other universities, which are smaller in size like the HBCUs, but are active in tech transfer. Uh, so, so it's a comparison between HBCUs and uh, predominantly white institutions uh, that are active in tech transfer. And it provides the HBCUs with benchmarks uh, and, and a, a model intellectual property policy, the job scheduling tool, uh, things like that, that they can use to build out a tech transfer office. Um, with with the proper tools that they're going to need. Now, why is the survival of HBCUs important to their local and regional economies? They serve uh, primarily Black Americans. They uh, graduate the highest number of Black American scientists and engineers uh, more so than predominantly white institutions. So that's that's one main reason. reason. Um, they're critical to the continued goal of increasing diversity in STEM, in engineering, in math, um, and in the sciences, uh, which is of vital importance to engineering education. Um, there's also an incredible amount of pride among people of color toward HBCUs because they've survived all these years. You know, we're we're talking about since uh, you know, eighteen uh, slaves were freed in eighteen sixty four. So we're going back, you know, hundreds of years and we would uh, you know, those of us who love these universities, we want to see them continue on for hundreds of years more, you know, so that's why the survival is is so incredibly important to us. It's just an incredible amount of pride in, in what these schools have been able to accomplish with less resources than a predominantly white institution. Yeah, it's it's absolutely incredible. And that makes me wonder a little bit about this toolkit that you developed for HBCUs. Do you think it would be useful for tech transfer offices at other Minority serving institutions or Hispanic serving institutions, Native American serving institutions, Asian American and Native American Pacific Islander serving institutions. Oh, absolutely! Um, in fact, as future research, I would like to take the same process and carry it out, making those comparisons between what uh, these other types of universities are doing in comparison to uh, predominantly white institutions using the same theoretical framework of having to find proper um, universities to compare them to. We we can't compare um, an HBCU, for example, to an R1, uh, University of Illinois Champaign, you know, so you have to find the right uh, size, the right type of school to make the comparison. And, and that exercise can be carried out with the Hispanic or Native American or Asian and, um, uh, you know, Native Pacific Islander institutions. And I think it's an important exercise to carry out. 
Absolutely. And that leads me to my last question, Dr. Hamilton. Can you give us an idea of what your current research is focusing on? Oh, sure. <laughs> um, so in terms of HBCUs, um, I'm investigating different potential partnership models. As I mentioned earlier, I think it's important that HBCUs and other minority serving institutions and build more capacity. I don't think they'll be able to compete for licensing opportunities or be able to finance, patenting, and unless they build larger tech transfer capabilities. And one way to do that is through partnering with predominantly white institutions or other entities. So um, I want to study the different models that are out there right now and look at what has been done, what's going on now, what could be done, what's working, what's not working, um, and look also at some more micro-foundational psychological issues like trust, you know, how how well those two different types of uh, institutions would trust each other in the tech transfer arena. I um, also have a survey that I developed uh, to uh, to send out to HBCU faculty and administrators. I want to study how they compare themselves to predominantly white institutions, uh, again, along the vein of a psychology type of uh, study, applying the social comparison theory by Sessinger. Um This was a survey that I developed in one of my PhD courses. um, So it's been on my plate for about four years, and I would love to get that off my plate and go ahead and administer it. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) You know, again, the the trust issues, job insecurity issues, uh, things like that, I think, are important to study. I think uh, there's the Journal of Technology Transfer, which has been around since the 1970s, and um, they've been cranking out um, scholarly work since Bido Act of 1980, and um, I think we're saturated with how we've been studying tech transfer, and, and it's high time to start looking at the more looking at things in a more microscopic way of of um, along the psychological vein. And so that would be kind of neat to do. And then lastly, I'm also, I also study social issues and management because I've taught ethics for 10 years. And so the murder of George Floyd motivated me and one of my colleagues to study the use of artificial intelligence and policing. We have a, a, a conference paper that's coming out next year. Our conference for this year was canceled because of COVID, but it will be published next year, and we call it RoboCop. (laughs) And it's a look at um, how artificial intelligence can put some distance between police and um, African-Americans and other people of color who have been subject to police misconduct. Um, It sounds far-fetched, but it's actually... Actually, uh, 
technology, a technological area that's used heavily here in South Korea. In South Korea, they rely heavily, police rely heavily on CCTV and and artificial intelligence to ticket people, to uh, communicate with, with the general public and things like that. So there's not a, as much face-to-face, hands-on, direct contact as in America. And we don't see that, that heightened level of misconduct, that potential for misconduct because of it. So, so we investigated that with a bibliometric study, and, and it's a neat study. It's sort of, sort of my scholarly way of protesting um, social issues is I, I go to work doing research. <laughs> I I think it's a very timely and important issue in finding creative ways to um, deal with those types of interactions um, is very important. So um, police contact with citizens. So I'm looking forward to reading your paper when it comes out. We might have to have you back on and talk a little bit more about it. It sounds very creative. Cool. I would love to do that. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Hamilton, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Uh, the best way to reach me is with my Gmail account. It's clovia.hamilton at gmail.com. I check that every day. And, um, you know, uh, uh, feel free to contact me. I would love to hear from you guys. Great. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Hamilton. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.